This is Real Estate Rookie episode 290. The cost between like a, a mini split, a ductless uh, kind of uh, HVAC system versus the traditional uh, systems are pretty comparable. But um, the reason we typically go with the mini splits is because you're able to, hopefully this is kind of our, our logic is, is save on your, your costs a little bit because you're able to turn it on by the room. So if you only have one unit going, then it's only just that one kind of part of the house that's going as opposed to a lot of the central heating and air. Maybe you, you only have, you know, if it's a small house, maybe there's just like one unit that's trying to cool the entire house. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And we're back with another Rookie Reply, where we get to answer questions from our rookie audience and give you guys the insights as if you're sitting in the same room as me and Ashley today. Today is Rookie Reply. We are actually going to be uh, turned into expert uh, HVAC service techs, Tony and I, and also our producer does chime in to correct us. So maybe that, not that expert, but um, we are going to talk about different ways to heat and cool your house. And I promise this does have something to do with real estate investing. When you are looking at properties, what are the different options you may have and what may be better or worse for you, depending on the property, the area you're in and what kind of investment you are doing. Um, the next thing that I really like we touch on are security deposits. You are inheriting a tenant. What happens with the security deposit? Are you getting a check? Are they having to pay you the security deposit? Do you get it from the seller? Do you have to come up with your own security deposit for the tenant? And we'll talk about all things security deposit. Yeah. We also talk a little bit about the difference between a home equity line of credit and a traditional line of credit. Uh, Cause those things, even though they sound uh, somewhat similar, there's actually a difference between the two. So we want to make sure you understand when to use one and when to use the other. Uh, but I also want to give a quick shout out to someone by the username of Brit G. She left a five-star review on Apple podcast. And uh, she says, I'm an elementary school teacher in the Los Angeles area. I've always been told I picked the wrong career if I want to own property in LA. Well, real estate rookie is helping me emerge from that lie I've ignorantly bought into and providing hope and practical steps to finally move towards real estate ownership. The Pace Morby episode specifically is so motivating. Thank you, Tony and Ashley. So Britt, we are super excited for you. And I love that you said that, that you've uh, you've kind of woken up from that lie because becoming a real estate investor works in any market, in any cycle. There are always people being successful with these strategies. So um, yeah, we appreciate that. And if you're a Ricky audience member and you haven't yet left us an honest rating review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is you're listening, please take a few minutes to do that. The more reviews we get, the more folks we can reach, the more folks we can reach, more folks we can help. Or kindly ask all of your friends and family to do so on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But seriously, thank you guys so much. We love reading your reviews, especially when you tell us how the podcast has helped you, what you realize, how you've been inspired and motivated. And also, I love the mention of the Pace Morby um, a podcast episode right there, too. That really was a great one. Um, before this episode started, Tony put me into a group text with Pace Morby. I am now texting all my friends. I am in a group text with Pace Morby. <laughs> <laughs> but we might have something super exciting that we may be working on with Pace. So stay tuned to see what that may be in the coming weeks or month. Um, this is going to be very weather dependent, as <laughs> we have learned. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? 
Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent toretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, today's question. Our first one up is from Alex Deal. House A and House B are exactly the same, except House A has HVAC and House B has window units. How big of a difference will this make in rents, other things being equal? First, I think we should explain exactly what an HVAC system is. So this is your, I don't actually, what does it even stand for? Heating, ventilation. Oh, is that, the, I was going to say, <laughs> I don't know what the V stands for, heating and air conditioning, but yeah, yes. ventilation sounds right. So this is a unit in your house that produces, sometimes it can still produce just heat and you don't have to get the cooling system that goes with it for air conditioning but typically there are vents placed around your house. They do duct work throughout the house. And commonly it is a forced air unit that um, you use to heat your house. And they're saying the house A has this option where it's kind of like a built-in system throughout your house. House B has window units. So this is where I'm not sure on the exact details as far as window units doesn't mean air conditioning units, because I don't think I've ever seen heating units that are in the window. Have you, Tony? Heating units in the window? I, I've only seen AC window units. So I wonder if this question is just 
the air conditioning is through the whole house or has AC window units. Yeah. I've actually never purchased a home with just a window unit. Um, every property that I've purchased has either had central heating and air, uh, a swamp cooler is actually a really popular thing out in the desert. Um, and then we do a lot of mini splits for, for most of our properties, honestly. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if window units have the ability to push heat either. So as far as the question goes, it's how big of a difference will this make in rents? Other things being equal. I think the best thing to do is to look at comparables in your area. What do other houses have? If every other house for rent does have HVAC systems and then yours has window units, this may reflect on the the price because people expect to have that, that HVAC, that forced air. If you look at rental units and it's all different kinds of air conditioning um, and heat throughout uh, the units for different properties for rent, then it may not affect your rent price at all. There's uh, two 40-unit apartment complexes that we have here, and each one for the AC has wall units, but they're not like the mini split units. It actually is like half inside the wall, half outside the, the wall, almost like a window unit, but it's put into the wall instead. And those are the AC units. The the rent is not affected at all compared to other units in the area based on that. Yeah. I, I love your advice, Ashley, about looking at your comparables because I, I think Alex, for you, that'll be the best kind of truth or source of truth for you. Um, but I, I guess just for those that are, that are curious, I recently had to install uh, a mini split system on a few of our rehabs. And I'd say installed, we're paying uh, about three to 4,000 bucks per unit. Um, like we had a, a three bedroom that we did one on and I was about 15 grand because we put one in each bedroom and then one in the living room, uh, kind of kitchen area as well. Um, but I've actually never installed central heating and air on a property before. Have you had to install central heating and air ash? What's the ballpark price on that? Yeah. So I just did one in a cabin. The cabin is about a little under a thousand feet square footage, but the bedrooms are open loft. So there's not a lot of closed off rooms in there, but, um, that I think it was around $8,000 to put the forest air unit in with the AC with it. So heat and AC. Yeah. And that's what I've, I've come to see is that the, the cost between like a, a mini split, a ductless uh, kind of uh, HVAC system versus the traditional uh, systems are pretty comparable. But um, the reason we typically go with the mini splits is because you're able to, hopefully this is kind of our, our logic is, is save on your, your costs a little bit because you're able to turn it on by the room. So if you only have one unit going, then it's only just that one kind of part of the house that's going as opposed to a lot of the central heating and air. Maybe you, you only have, you know, if it's a small house, maybe there's just like one unit that's trying to cool the entire house. So that's kind of been our, our logic. Have you, have you priced out between like the central versus the mini splits for your properties? Or do you just always go with the central? We did um, a couple mini splits probably two or three years ago in properties, like our big four unit we did. And those ended up being $5,000 each installed for them. One big decision for me, though, as to whether I'm going to install those or do forced air is based on if I'm tearing out the walls or anything, if I'm doing a full gut rehab, because putting in that duct work, um, sometimes they, you know, have to go through, you know, cut through the floor, go through the walls, (laughs) like, especially if you have a second story, they'll need to run it through something to get it up to the second story. So that's definitely a big uh, decision maker is if I'm going to have the 
you know, the walls open already to run the duct work to do the forced air units. And of course, there's like that industrial look where it's like up in the ceiling. And that's actually what we did in the cabin. We had um, there's this huge pipe that runs from one loft to another into like the actual closets. And then from there, it goes down into the the little rooms and then it has the vents out into the main space off of the big pipe that goes across. So um, I think there's so many different ways to install these things. And it's where getting a good contractor that will price out your different options for you. We originally had two contractors come out and quote this for us. And this property actually had um, radiant in-floor heat, which is another heating option. And there was, when they did a pressure test on the lines underneath the concrete, because it's this cabin is just on a concrete slab, it didn't pass the pressure test, meaning that there was a leak somewhere. So our options were to kind of guess where it was and rip up the concrete floor or just not use the forest air at all or the radiant in-floor heat at all. So we decided to just abandon that. And that's where we went and put the forest air unit in. In the other cabin, though, it had a basement where you were able to access the the lines for the radiant in-floor heat underneath the floor. And that actually passed the pressure test anyways. So we ended up just putting a new boiler in that system to run the radiant heat. And we didn't um, put a forced air unit into that at all. So that cabin um, with the radiant in-floor heat, it doesn't have a AC option. So eventually we'll have to go and probably put the mini split unit in for AC in that property. Isn't it crazy how like every market has its own solution for heating and cooling, like radiant floor heat. I'm not even sure what you mean when you say that. Like, I don't think I've ever walked a property that has radiant, like just give me a visual of what that even looks like. So you live in a warm climate, so you don't need this, but imagine getting out of the shower and you have some nice tile floor that feels really cold on your feet. Well, you have that radiant floor heat that emits the heat up from the floor. And now the tile is nice and warm and cozy and your feet don't get cold. Um, Actually, my house now, the whole house is radiant in floor heat. Um, So every piece of flooring, the the basement, the garage, and then it's a ranch. So the whole first level is all radiant in floor heat. And that's how we heat our house. And then it's set up into different zones. So there's thermostats for, you know, like the be- different bedrooms, the main area, things like that. So yeah, there's so many, so many different options. Interesting. Do you guys have swamp coolers in Buffalo? No. And the only reason I know about that is because we did talk about this once and you had told me what it was, but I think you should explain it again. But yeah, we, we I had never heard of it. Yeah. And you know, I, I had never really heard of it either until we started investing in, in the desert, but it's a, it's a common uh, cooling option for folks who live in the desert, but basically the swamp cooler, um, it like pulls in, it almost works like the, like the window unit, right? Where it's like pulling in air and then, then it's like kind of pushing it down into the house, but it's not working off the traditional thing, but usually they kind of like sit on top of the roof. And I want to say there's some kind of like moisture element to it as well. Cause you now they always have like these drip pans and, and stuff. But the thing is like, they're, they're kind of confusing to use. Like you have to like open your windows a certain way. And um, we just didn't think that guests in short-term rentals who aren't familiar with swamp coolers could use them the right way. Cause we didn't even really fully understand them. So typically we just take out the swamp coolers and that's what we, we end up putting in the mini split systems, but they are uh, a low, cost way to kind of keep your house cool. Um, and I've been told they work 
it, like if you get a good swamp cooler, it can work just as well as like central uh, air does, but at a fraction of the cost. So uh, an option for you guys. So I think kind of to wrap up this question here is that if it was me personally, I would go if everything else was the same, I'd go with the house with the HVAC system instead of the window units. First of all, I think it's an, a nicer look. Um, not having the window units sticking out, not having, especially that if you're using the AC ones, typically in um, colder months when you don't need the AC, uh, depending where this property is, you have to take the AC unit out of the window, you close the window back up. And then when spring comes again, you have to put it back in. Stick it back in. Yeah. So, uh, and also HVAC systems tend to be more energy efficient than these window units at using um and electric or gas or however your HVAC system is run. And our, our producer just corrected me too about the, uh, the the swamp cooler. He said, yes, they they use evaporative cooling. The air flows over cool water pads and then lowers the temperature. So there you go. That's how the, the swamp coolers work. So shout out to Eric for uh, coming in clutch with that, uh, that last little bit of information. And then he also wanted to add that the window units could be a safety concern too for falls and break-ins possibly. And that's, you know, that's actually true. Like I don't, have you have you bought any furniture from like um I don't know like anywhere recently like we we bought like a dresser and when we were putting the dresser together for one of the properties and th- this was like a couple of years ago um but it had directions that it wanted us to secure the back of the dresser to the wall like it had like an anchor to to take the back of the dresser into the drywall to stop things from tipping over because I guess there had been instances of these dressers tipping over on a small children so um, that's actually a really good point. Safety concerns about the wall units also. Yeah, that actually happened to my son when he was younger. He tried to climb up the dresser and luckily like he had pulled out the bottom drawer. So the bottom drawer kind of like held it a little bit. So it never like completely fell. But you know, that those sturdy uh, Amish furniture, that sturdy drawer held up the whole dresser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Hiring? Your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit 
to post your jobs with more visibility at indeed.com slash rookie. Just go to indeed.com slash rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. I used to think working from home was the dream, until it wasn't. Between the distractions and the solitude, I was struggling. But then, I discovered Industrious Office, and honestly, it's been a game changer. Every day at Industrious feels like stepping into a zone of productivity. The high-speed internet never fails me during crucial moments, and the workspace? It's not only stylish, but designed to boost your focus and creativity. Plus, the daily breakfast and endless coffees are super cool. Meeting other driven professionals right where I work has not just expanded my network, it's inspired me. It's amazing how being around other focused people can push you to achieve more, you know what I mean? If you're looking for a sign to change your workspace, this is it. Check out Industrious by visiting biggerpockets.com industrious. Then click join now and use the promo code pockets to get a free week of co-working when you take a tour. That's biggerpockets.com industrious and use promo code pockets after clicking join now. Experience for yourself how the right environment can change the way you work. Industrious. It's where your best work happens. Okay, let's go on to our next question. This one is from Eric Heinen. Once again, you guys, thank you so much for submitting questions to us. If you would like to submit your own question, please leave it on the Real Estate Rookie Facebook page. And also coming soon, Tony and I will also have uh, links in our link trees and our profiles on our Instagram accounts at Wealth From Rentals and at Tony J. Robinson. And then your last option and probably the easiest is just go to biggerpockets.com slash reply and Leave your question there. Okay, so Eric's question is, I recently purchased a property for $100,000 and put down $25,000, and the appraisal came back at $125,000. So I have some nice instant equity there. My question is, how soon after taking ownership can I take out a HELOC out on this property? I'm already looking at another property and I could use the HELOC as the down payment. Would a bank do this or want me to wait? Secondly, how much could I get? Would it be 80% of the 50K in equity? So 40K, thanks. Yeah, well, lot, lots of good questions here. And I feel like we've, we've been getting a lot of questions recently about uh, like lines of credit and and HELOCs. Um, I think the, the first thing that I'll say is that most banks only give HELOCs, home, equ- home equity lines of credit uh, on your primary residence. You can get a commercial line of credit. Um, I've tried. I found it pretty difficult with the, the kind of local banks I chatted with here uh, in California. Ash, I think you've had some success, success with lines of credit in, in your neck of the woods. But I would say most banks aren't going to give you a HELOC per se 
on an investment property, but they will give you a HELOC on a, a primary residence. Um, have you noticed anything different from that, Ash, or, or does that kind of jive with what you, you've seen as well? Yeah, I've been able to do two commercial lines of credit on uh, rental properties that are in LLCs, but they're not the best of rates. And you're going to get a way better rate if it is your primary residence. Um, but the the biggest thing is just going to different banks and asking what they have to offer on the property, because you'll be surprised at what some banks can do, especially small local banks. And that's where I've had uh, the best luck, I guess, is using those small local banks. One bank that I've used the most frequent only has seven branches, I think. And maybe it's it might, may even be less than that. I think one thing to call out, though, and and you know, definitely check with your whatever bank you end up getting your HELOC with. But what I've seen some people do is like if they if they live in their property uh, and they plan on moving before they move, they'll pull a HELOC on that property. Uh, now, like I said, make sure you understand the limitations of whatever HELOC you're using. Like, do you have to do you have to live in it for the duration of the HELOC or you just need to be at the time that you close in the HELOC? But I have seen some investors do that where they they know that they have a decent amount of equity in the home that they have. And before they turn that home into a, a, a rental property, they then go out, get the line of credit and then use that um, after the fact. This is such a great alternative to selling your house. You know, if you want your don't want to rent it out because you have a hundred thousand dollars in equity sitting into it and you just seem like that would kind of be a waste to let that equity go, instead of selling it, just go ahead and take out that HELOC so you can still tap into that money on the property too and use it for your next next investment. As far as the second question, would it be eighty percent of the equity that is left in the property? So the way a HELOC works is You'll take the appraised value of the property, what your current mortgage is, and then subtract that to get what equity you have. And then they will lend up to a certain amount. So in this example, he's saying 80%. So if the property appraised at 125000 the mortgage is 75000 And then he would um, be able to take up that difference, whatever that difference is from the 75000 to 80% of 125. Tony, what is that math? Have you been calculating as I've been trying it out? Yeah. So you do you do 125 times 80% minus your 75 leaves you with 25K. Okay. So 25K is left in equity. So as far as him saying the 50%, it's not 80% of the equity that's left in the property. It's 80% of the whole appraised value. So I think that's what we need to to make clear for him. And I think that's where the, the confusion is. It's not 80% of the equity. It's 80% of the appraised value minus what you already have your mortgage for. So that would be, he'd be able to get um, the 25,000 instead of 40,000 on the property. And then one other question that Eric asked um, is just like, is there a time period on the HELOC? So I know for a lot of cash out refinances, there's a seasoning period where they want to see you hold the property for you know six months or so is what you typically hear to be able to do a, a, a cash out refinance. But I'm, I'm honestly actually not sure if there's a time period on getting a key lock on your primary residence. Are, are you aware of any restrictions? No, I'm not. I only know of like a seasoning period that a bank may require to go ahead and refinance a property, but not for a line of credit. But also it can depend on the bank 
Um, so asking different banks as to what their rules are for that. But um, a seasoning period to refinance can typically be six months to 12 months before they have you go and refinance. As far as a line of credit, I don't think I've ever went and gotten a line of credit right after closing on a property. So I haven't had any experience in that at all. Another thing I want to mention too, as far as the 80% um, of the appraised value to get that line of credit is that may vary too. That's not like a lot of mortgages are standard at the 80% when you're going to refinance. But as far as a HELOC, there, um, sometimes my one business partner, he took out a HELOC and they went up to 95% of the, the appraised value of his home. So he actually had it kind of stacked. He had, um, a mortgage that was actually with a, a private lender who he purchased, uh, or no, he didn't purchase house from them, but they lended him the, the private money to do that. And he's pays them the mortgage payments Then stacked on top of that. He went and got a home equity loan. So instead of a line of credit, it's actually a payment plan split up where he's paying um, equity or he's paying principal and interest on it. And then stacked on top of that, he had a line of credit. So he was very leveraged at 95% of the property. But the difference was, was that all those funds he was using to put into our deals and our deals were paying him a mortgage payment, which more than covered the payments he was making for that additional home equity loan and that HELOC on the property too. Okay, let's move on to our next question. This question is from Tim Lartor. What is the advantage to a real estate investment company raising capital through private equity versus a bank? What's in it for them? From an investor standpoint, this looks like a great source for passive income, but I'm weary. So I think what he's trying to say here is why would somebody go out and raise private money instead of going to a bank to fund their deal? Well, just to add some context, so the Specifically, Tim, and he posted this in the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group, but he also linked to a company called Realty Mogul. Um, and if you if you all look up Realty Mogul, they're essentially like a, a crowdfunding platform for real estate transactions. And you'll, I guess, if let's even take a step back, right? Um, most people who are buying large real estate deals, uh, big apartment complexes, large self-storage facilities, big commercial mixed-use developments, the majority of people who are purchasing or building those kind of projects are not using all of their own money. They're raising funds from two different sources. It's usually a mix of these two sources. The first source and the majority of the, the cost comes from a bank. So they'll go to a big bank and they'll get maybe 70% of the total cost to purchase that, that property. And then the remaining 30%, they'll go out and they'll raise from other individuals who become their passive investors. So this is called a syndication. And you can syndicate anything, but syndication in real estate, that's how, how it goes. There's one group of people who find the deal, put the deal together, secure the bank financing, and then they go out and they raise funds from other in individuals to cover the remaining balance, right? So usually 70, 30%. So um, Tim, first thing I'll say is that it's a very common practice. Um, and pretty much any big shopping center that you drive by or, or big apartment complex you drive by probably leverage some sort of uh, syndication to make that happen. So it is a, a very normal thing. And then he said, what's in it for them? Like, what's the reasoning for that? I mean, I, I think mostly it's just the 
Um, you know, say you want to buy a $100 million apartment complex, right? And maybe you're able to get 70 million from the bank. That's still $30 million that you need to, to put up to be able to purchase that property. And I'd say the average person probably doesn't have 30 million bucks lying around, but maybe if they know enough other investors who have, you know, a hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand, five hundred thousand dollars they're able to stack up to get to that 30 million. So that's a big part of the reason why folks leverage the syndication model is because the numbers are bigger than what they could take down uh, comfortably themselves. Now, there are some differences though, because like I said, in, in this post, Tim uh, links to Realty Mogul and they, they focus a little bit more on crowdfunding as opposed to a traditional syndication. So if you work with a, a traditional syndicator, usually um, they're going to offer you what's called the 506B, which allows for both uh, accredited and non-accredited investors or 506C, which only allows for accredited investors. And usually there's some kind of minimum investment. You might see 25K on a smaller deal, maybe 50 to 100K on a bigger deal, which means at minimum, you have to be able to put up, you know, maybe a six figure check to participate in that deal. Um, and if it's only open to accredited investors, you have to check certain boxes around your income um, or your net worth to be able to qualify to even be able to invest in those deals. So that's where the majority of kind of action happens. And then on a crowdfunding platform like Realty Mogul, that one's a little bit different because you don't necessarily have to be an accredited investor. You don't need to write a $50,000 check. A lot of these crowdfunding platforms allow you to get in with like a hundred bucks and you obviously own a very small share of that, uh, that real estate deal, but your, your ability to, to kind of get involved in, in the threshold is significantly lower. Um, so. Yeah, it's a it's a win win. I think for for both people, assuming that the operator, the person putting the deal together, knows what they're doing, um, and it could be a really easy way to get a passive return on your investment. And then his last question is: from an investor standpoint, this looks like a great source for passive income, but he's not exactly sure if it is. So the best thing you can do is to vet the operator of the the syndication deal or the crowdfunding platform. One way to do that is to talk to other people who are investing with them. So, you know, I think a great starting point was Tim putting this in the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group. If anybody has invested with them to hear some kind of feedback, uh, do that in all different kinds of Facebook groups. Put it out on Instagram and see what kind of feedback you get. The Bigger Pockets forums, gold for finding out information on people or companies. Lots of people will give you their opinion, but also do your own research. Before you invest in a syndication deal, actually understand what fees you are paying, how the deal is structured, what, you know, when are you actually going to get your money back? Um, all these different things that it can be extremely confusing. So my recommendation would be to go to YouTube University learn to understand what a syndication deal is. You shouldn't be investing in something just by, oh, this company on social media looks like they do a good job. This property looks really nice that they're about to buy. I'm going to invest in it. That should not be your reasoning for investing with someone. So take the time to actually do some research about the company, and then also to understand what your investment is actually getting you. Worst case scenario, best case scenario. Yeah, I guess just one last thing, Ashley. It might be cool if we bring on uh, someone who's an active, passive investor in syndications to talk about 
How are they vetting these different operators? How are they potentially vetting the deals? What kind of returns are they typically able to, to achieve? Because honestly, um, lending money uh, on the private, like being a private money lender or being an LP and other people's syndications are the most passive ways to be a real estate investor and still get a, a healthy return because you're going to get a better return than you would typically with like a REIT. Um, but it's definitely not as much work as managing that deal yourself. So maybe we'll, we'll plant that seed for our, our producers to maybe find some uh, some LPs and passive investors and have them give their experience to the rookie audience. Yeah. You know who I just saw recently that posted on social media and this can be our Instagram shout out of the week. We need like some cool noise. <laughs> but, uh, one person uh, that I saw was at honey money, Rachel. So Rachel, she actually just posted how I think she's wants to, or has, um, invested in five syndication deals. I know, I think it was at least three that she's done so far, maybe even this year. And and she shares a lot about her journey of investing in the syndications. And she used to be a very active hands-on investor with rental properties, went through a divorce and kind of had to sell up her portfolio. And now she's kind of stacking it back up while also investing in syndication. So she might actually be a great person to have on as to how she is choosing the syndication deals she's investing in. Yeah. I'm actually in a group chat with uh, Rachel and some other investors. So I got to hit her up and see if she's down to, to come hop on. She'd be great. Okay. So our next question is from Jared Sutherland. Do you check rent is being paid during 10 day inspection periods or before I will be inheriting tenants for four months? How does security deposit work? Is that transferred or does it come out of pocket? I haven't bought with existing renters before. Thanks. Okay. So for this one, um, inheriting tenants, always a controversial issue that we discuss here in the bigger pockets forums, real estate, Ricky. Facebook page. I've never inherited a tenant because I've always been too terrified. So you're, <laughs> you're the person that they can speak on that. I have, and I've had good case. I've had more good cases than bad cases for sure. Inheriting yeah. tenants. And I feel yeah. like that's how it is with all parts of real estate investing, right? Like I, I haven't met anyone that does any strategy where it's like, this has gone wrong the majority of the time. Like every strategy that people talk about that maybe they're they're hesitant to go into, it could be like people feel that way about short-term rentals. People feel that way about Section 8. People feel that way about investing in Detroit, right? Like there's, you can think of any kind of asset class and there's always this like, hesitation. But I feel like in general, the reason why real estate investing is so popular and so successful is because more often than not, if you do things the right way, it's going to work out. So I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent now, Ashley, but no, no, I think, I think that was great and definitely relatable and 100% accurate. Okay. So the first question is, do you check rent is being paid during the 10 day inspection period or before? So your 10 day inspection periods, your due diligence, you can I would ask at any time. Uh, you don't even have to wait until the 10 day inspection. This is actually something you could even ask for before you even put your offer in. Um, or when they sign the offer, if they will give it to you, that's definitely up to the seller. But as far as if rent has been paid, there will be a rent rider attached to your contract. So if you are purchasing an on market deal, the real estate agent will provide this to you where it will tell when was rent last paid. And as far as checking the accuracy of that, well, it depends on how the tenant is paying rent and if the seller is actually reporting that rental income as to how much you can they can actually prove to you that the tenant has paid. 
in this scenario, I usually have the the seller of the property tell me, you know, what the rental payment is, how often they have paid, if they're all caught up on rent. But then I also send a notice to the tenant called an estoppel agreement where they fill out the information and I verify what the tenant is saying and what the landlord is saying. You can go as far as asking for bank statements from the landlord or asking them to show like proof of the income being deposited each month. I've never done this, um, but it's definitely one extra step you can take to verify that the rent is being paid and collected. Uh, as far as the security deposit, this is usually taken care of at closing where you will receive a credit on the closing statement. So say the security deposit is $1,000 a month. At closing, you will be paying $1,000 less for the property for the security deposit, but then you will have to come up with the cash yourself to actually fund that person's security deposit. So in four months when they're leaving, if they have the right to their security deposit because there's no damages, you have to come up with that $1,000. So make sure you have that money kind of set aside and reserved for that. You can also negotiate though that it's not taken off the closing statement and that you are still paying the normal purchase price and that um, the seller actually writes you a check for the security deposit. One thing to be very cautious of, which happened to me when I was still very, very young at buying inherited tenants, I bought a, a couple properties from one investor and there was two tenants that owed him some rent still. They were not caught up on rent. And he actually took that money out of their security deposit and on the closing statement only gave me the remainder of their security deposit. That wasn't what was supposed to be done. That wasn't supposed to happen, but I just didn't understand. I didn't realize and I didn't catch it and neither did my attorney. So that's something I always check for now is make sure I'm getting the full security deposit back. If they owe him rent, they owe him rent that shouldn't come out of the security deposit because that is your security deposit now per the lease agreement that is in place. That's super smart. I, I just, I, I never thought to, to kind of check for that, but it's, yeah, especially about like if they owe, if they owe that person, that shouldn't come out of the money that you're owed, right? That's, um, that's super smart. And a lot of leases, like in our lease, it says the security deposit cannot be used for last month's rent or rent owed because a lot of t- we had seen that sometimes people would be like, oh, just keep my security deposit. But then we get into the units like, oh, we needed your security deposit trash. to do these right. other things. And so a lot. So like check, because if that's in the, the security or the lease agreement, the seller can't even doesn't even have a right to that security deposit because they haven't even left the unit. So definitely one thing to check for. Let me ask you this question. You know, you've been investing for a while now. How many different versions of your lease agreement for your own portfolio do you think you've gone through? Ballpark. When I started working as a property manager, it was a 40-unit apartment complex. It was a one-page lease agreement. Now, the lease agreement is like 10 pages, I think. And then with all the addendums, like the cleaning checklist, and you move out, like here's the keys that you're getting, like all these, here's your pet addendum all these things that it's actually longer than that. But yeah, so it definitely changed. And I've had a property management company in place. And actually in a couple of days is when the in-house property manager I've hired takes over. So I've created a new lease agreement again, but so they had their own, but yeah, definitely over time and has just like 
adapted and changed. And, you know, and for each property too, I don't use the same lease agreement for every property because there's different things like the 40 unit apartment complex. I, I put in there like, you know, the, the entry doors are locked. You get a common area key. Like these are some of the rules, things like that. You're not, you know, somebody comes in and does the snow plowing, you know, and you're not responsible for snow removal. Well, a single family home, they are responsible for snow removal. If I put things about the shared common areas in there, I'm like, what do you mean? Who am I sharing this with? This is a single family home. So um, making sure that your lease actually applies to the property too. And then I just save all of those templates, template, lease agreement, and then whatever property it's for. And like a lot of the duplexes and stuff, I can pretty much use the same one where it's like fillable for utilities if they're different, you know, maybe I'm paying the water on one, but I'm not on the other things like that. So those are pretty much standard, but, um, yeah, going through your lease agreement every once in a while, or even just like keeping a little notes in your phone. So on Instagram or wherever you see somebody included one little thing into their lease agreement that made a difference, or they had this issue that came up and they're like, I never thought that would happen. Go ahead, write it down. So like every quarter or every year, whenever you're going through your leases, you can you have that little notepad and you can go in and add those things in. Yeah. And and the reason why I ask that that question is because I, I want all of our rookies to understand that your your lease honestly should be uh kind of like a, a living, breathing document. And as you said, as tenants move out or you experience different challenges with certain tenants. The way that you problem solve for that or, or kind of um, future proof for that to make sure it doesn't happen again is that you update your lease. And, you know, we, we don't have leases for any of our properties because everything's short term. But what we do have are JV agreements with our, our different partners that we've worked with. And I'd say that after almost every single partnership, we've identified something that we wanted to change or update to that partnership for the next one. So, um, yeah, a lot of your documents you have in your business, whether for partnerships, whether for tenants, whether for whatever it may be, you always want to make a, make it a habit of going back and updating those to reflect whatever new information you're receiving. Yeah. It's so funny. Like I was looking back through an old folder of when I first started property management and like, just looking at my checklist of like, when a new tenant moves in, like, here's my checklist. Like I knew nothing about property management. I was like thrown into this job. I had no one to like mentor me or show me what to do. I was literally just Googling stuff. And I was like, looking at it, I was like, geez, I actually should start using this again. Like, because this is actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wasn't too but, bad. Um, yeah, so it's just like interesting to see it, all the things that evolved, but also like how simplistic it was, but it worked for me so well. Like now I'd probably take the same thing and like add like 50 little line items underneath each thing to expand on it. But like just going back, it's just like something, some little process, some little system, some lease agreement that you can just continuously build off. Yeah. And, and I guess like just last comment on that, because you mentioned you made such a good point there, Ashley, is that when when you're when you're a brand new investor, and honestly, this isn't even just for investing. This is for like any anything that you're trying to accomplish in life. But I use investing because that's what this podcast is about. When you're looking at someone like Ashley or Tony from the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, or you're looking at James Daynard and Kathy Fetke from and Henry Washington from from On the Market, or you're looking at Rob and and David from the the Real Estate Podcast. It's easy to hear about how their businesses are running or how they've kind of set things up, how things are optimized, and feel like you're way 
behind because you haven't established all of those things yet. But what you have to understand is that we're all multiple steps into this journey. And we've already kind of gone through those mistakes and those rough patches to identify where we kind of need to make improvements. And that's what I love about James Daynard. Um, he, he's always so open that the only reason he knows so much and he's able to be so articulate about running his real estate business is because he's made a ton of mistakes along the way. And every tip that he's giving you when it comes to flipping houses, managing rehabs, wholesaling, whatever, is because he made a mistake to teach him that lesson. So for all of our rookies that are listening, don't, don't get demotivated by hearing how Ashley has a 10 page lease instead take what she said at the beginning that she started with a one page lease and it was over the course of her investing career that she was able to make those changes and adjustments to get to where she is today. And you can also go to biggerpockets.com slash pro and become a pro member and get state specific lease agreements for free that were created by an attorney. Um, and that's a great starting point for you to start looking at those. And then you can just download them and you can tailor them and change them as much as you want to. And of course, when you're done, I would have an attorney approve them if you do make a lot of changes to that lease agreement. But that's a great starting point right there is using those documents. Uh, also, everyone listening, please do not tell James Daynard how much we talk about him on this podcast because he will never, ever let me live it down. <laughs> so this stays between us. This is a little rookie secret. Okay. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's rookie reply. I'm Ashley at wealth from rentals and he's Tony at Tony J Robinson. And we will be back on Wednesday with a guest. Getting started in real estate can be daunting. There's so much to know, obstacles to overcome, lessons to learn, and risks to avoid. It can all be so overwhelming. If you're feeling motivated to invest, but too overwhelmed to take action, here's some advice. Take it one step at a time. And here's some good news for you. The Rookie Bootcamp is starting on May 20th, and Tyler and Ashley will be guiding you through each and every step until you're the proud, confident owner of your first investment property. Through eight action-packed weeks, they'll guide you step-by-step through those first questions, decisions, and obstacles that every beginner investor must overcome. So if you're serious about becoming an investor this year, head to biggerpockets.com step and join us in the Rookie Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.